All right, well, come on back and uh, grab your Bibles, and uh, we're going to continue through the book of Jeremiah, uh, and we are in a part uh, of Jeremiah 14 through 16 or so, we're going to try and hit 17 too, uh, that are, um, these really concentrate, these uh, chapters, on the coming Babylonian invasion, and some people believe that chapter 14 here and 15 and 16 is being um, written or the prophecies happening around 609 or 610 BC. And this is what I want you to know about the southern invasion, the Babylonian invasion. It came in three waves. The first wave was around 607 BC. And if it's written in 609, see, it's impending. Uh, so they're worried about it, of course. 607, somewhere around 597, and then the, the death blow happened in 586. Three waves for the Babylonian invasion. And so that's really uh, what you need to know. I had the young ladies, they're coming up here in a minute. If you don't have this, my chicken scratch, they're bringing up more copies. It's really going to help you tonight. Well, I don't know if my chicken scratch can help you, but at least uh, know the kings of Judah. It really helped you tonight. Uh, Remember that Jeremiah, I always want to tell you this and remind you this and remind myself this, is the son of a priest. His whole family's from a priestly family. And God's called him to do this several year ministry of prophecy. And he never one time, not one time, sees any what the world would say was a fruitful uh, impact or had any fruitful impact. No one coming to the Lord. No one really doing much repenting or anything. So Jeremiah is seen as the weeping prophet. He weeps a lot. And mostly because he's, we talked about this, he uh, practices this art of lamenting that really doesn't happen in our personal lives or in the church much anymore. So... Um, uh, he's the weeping prophet. Three times in the Bible, three times in this book, uh, we'll see another one tonight, God actually tells him, don't even bother praying for the people of Judah. Why is that? It's because God's judgment is already set its course. There's nothing that could stop it. And so we'll, we'll see that again tonight. Uh, we've been looking uh, so far sort of about Je uh, uh, Jeremiah's call and his commission and um, some of the events that happened during a king named Josiah's rule. And if you want one of these papers, they just came in here and they have it. So uh, you can raise your hand and they'll get it to you. But uh, Josiah's rule and then uh, two through six of the Bible or Jeremiah was the sins of the nation. Seven through ten were the temple messages. And... Last time, 11 through 13, we see that they had broken the covenant, the covenant that God had set up with them, the Sinai covenant. Remember, they're a people of covenant. And I really tried to get you to remember that the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12 is a unilateral covenant. Like, I used the example of if, if I was going into or have Bob fix my car, it, it's not unilateral. 
There's duties and obligations on both sides. He fixes my car, I pay him the money. I pay him the money, he fixes the car. See, it's, it's, a, it's not a unilateral covenant, but the Abrahamic covenant was unilateral. Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through your family. One way. <laughs> it's a unilateral covenant. Mosaic covenant, the, the covenant at Sinai, it's... Do I keep saying unilateral? Oh, geez. It's not unilateral. It's a, a, a <laughs> Anyway, I think you got my point, but that ain't going to do too well on the tape. <laughs> uh, Abraham's covenant was unilateral, sorry. Uh, but a regular covenant has, is a two-way covenant. And is that, did I say that? All right, all right. Anyway, the Mosaic covenant was this. If you obey the law, good things will follow right? And so that's a two-way covenant sort of thing. So anyway, we talked about that. And now we're getting to this place where we're going to see uh, about the impending Babylonian invasion that we know is coming uh, because of the sins of uh, Judah. And we're going to learn a lot about who God is in relation to his people here in these chapters. So let's get right to it. The Lord said to me, chapter 15, even if Moses... Oh, man, am I really having a tough day? <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. We're in 14, aren't we? <laughs> there we go. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. There we go, droughts. I'm, I'm finding my way now. I'm reoriented. I recalibrated. There we go. Uh, uh, Judah mourns, and her gates languish. They mourn for the land. And the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns, found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads because, verse 4, the ground is parched, for there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field. But left because there was no grass, and the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was no grass. So let's just stop right there. What's he talking about? Well, apparently there were these droughts that kept happening to Judah. Now that's important because under the Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant, right? One of the things was if you go into the land and you depend upon the Lord... Uh, God's going to send rain from heaven. And you could read that in Deuteronomy 11, also in Leviticus, also in De Deuteronomy 28. But over the years, see, their sins brought about drought. That's Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah 5, Jeremiah 12. And that's fascinating. You, you see the double or the, uh, you know, you, you follow the Lord, you depend upon the Lord, you trust the Lord. That's interesting. You, there will be plenty of rain, but if you don't, drought. Now, that's fascinating, but, but I want you to remember, remember where they came from, Egypt. Remember this? What did they have in Egypt that supplied them water? What river? The Nile River, right? Not as, when you go to Israel and you see it, you're struck by how landlocked the two water sources are. 
They're down in this bowl, especially the Sea of Galilee. It's down in a bowl. It has a little tributary to the north, and then the Jordan River flows down to the Dead Sea. But what you're struck by is, unlike the Nile River, just because of the geography or topography, you, you, it, you think of this when you go there. Wow, these people are dependent upon it raining for there to be water, and it must be being dependent upon the Lord. I mean, it's like sort of landlocked, these uh, bodies of water. In fact, our guide, who isn't a believer, said that to us. Do you remember him saying that to us? And I was like, wow. And when you see it, you're struck by it. And here, uh, apparently, there are these terrible, terrible droughts. And what he says here in his writings is, It doesn't matter if you had a lot of money or no money. Nobles have sent their lads for water, and there was none, right? And it was so bad that um, uh, you could uh, see that the deer uh, were leaving and dying off, and the wild donkeys couldn't even, uh, uh, you know, they were sniffing at the wind, and their eyes failed, a sign of starving, like sagging because there was no grass Clearly, this, these were terrible droughts, and the reason it was terrible under the covenant is because they were being disobedient, right? Everybody tracking there? Another thing that's interesting is one of the things that the Canaanites prayed to Baal for was rain, was rain, so that you have uh, that in there as well. But there were these droughts, and uh, you can actually see in Lamentations 4, he goes on and describes them in greater detail in chapter 4, verse 4, 5, 8, and 9, talks about starving children and that sort of thing, or thirsty children, sorry, uh, because this drought was so bad. But you go on in chapter 7, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, this is now Jeremiah praying, he's seeing the impact of the disobedience, and remember on my handy-dandy little sheet here that everybody can read so perfectly, although it didn't copy too well. Remember, uh, there was a guy named Josiah, a young eight-year-old king. He started being the king at eight years old, and he um, made some reforms that were godly reforms, but there was no inward repentance. Remember that? That's important for what we're about ready to read. So he, uh, Jeremiah says, Oh Lord, though our iniquities testify against us. This, listen, this is important in prayer. <laughs> Jeremiah is at the end of his prayerful pleading rope because one thing he could have pled right here, watch this, is, Oh Lord, the people have repented. But they hadn't really. <laughs> There was this outward do some religious stuff, but inside there was real, really not much repentance, and we've been over that here in Jeremiah. Watch the second thing he could have pled with the Lord. Lord, the covenant, the covenant, you made a covenant with these people, but remember the covenant's a two-way covenant, and they've been disobedient, so guess what he does? And this might be the most mature and highest of all prayers, Lord because of your nature, do it. Because of your namesake, because of your character, Lord, 
Even though our iniquities testify against us, the prayer comes, do it for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. In other words, I have nowhere else to turn for my people, Jeremiah is saying. There's nothing else I can plead. The only thing I can plead is your great and awesome grace and mercy. Mike actually talked about it tonight. Because of your character, we've sinned against you. Oh, the hope of Israel, his Savior, in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Now, some people think that Jeremiah here is getting frustrated, and he's saying to the Lord, you're like a stranger in the land. In other words, it doesn't really seem, Lord, like you have omnipresence. Do you get that? Some people believe that. Then he also goes on and he says, uh, why should you be a, like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? No um, omnipotence, no power. You get that? Other people believe what he's saying is, of course you wouldn't be like a person who has no omnipresence because you are omnipresent. Get it? Of course you wouldn't be like a person who has no power because you are omnipotent. And he's praying according to the character of God. Yet you, O Lord, are in your midst right there uh, in the middle of uh, nine. And we are called by your name. Do not leave us. You see these great praying points of another great prayer, (laughs) Jeremiah. What does Moses do when he prays? He calls upon the character of God, doesn't he? He reminds God of God's character, not that God needs reminded, and yet he invokes the character of God in his prayers. What high and holy prayers it is to do it for your name's sake, Lord. What high and holy and mature prayer it is to quit praying about, you know, a broken pinky nail, hangnail, or sheesh. I had to get, you know, Adidas instead of Nikes, and I prayed for Nikes. Versus, Lord, I'm struggling through this thing in my life, but I'm praying according to your name, Lord, and what you have in this situation and where you're taking me, Lord, and for your glory, that's what should happen and I want. What a mature prayer that is, you see. And so here you kind of see uh, uh, Jeremiah uh, appealing in that way. And then it says here in verse 10, chapter 14, thus says the Lord to his people, thus they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. In other words, the drought is the proper punishment because they broke the covenant, you see. They've wandered. They've not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. He'll remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. And that tells you something really important about repentance in my own life and then in others' lives, but in my own life. Am I just sorry like certain presidents when I get caught? Or... Do I recognize that what I've done is a sin against God and I lament for that sin and I say I'm sorry and not only do I say the words, but after I say the words from an inward heart sickness about sinning against the Lord and against others, then and only then does my life change. You see, I start not to wander. I stick close to the Lord 
And we have billions and, I don't know about billions, but millions and millions of Christians running around, read the back of a magazine and say, yeah, I know 1 John 1, 9. If I confess my sin, man, it's over. I can go do it again. Paul says that's sheer stupidity. No way a, a new creation would ever trample the grace of God in that way. God's grace is not a crutch for us to sin. God's grace is a training grace in Christ-likeness. All you have to do is read the book of Titus. It's not wimpy, man. It's not a crutch. We say grace and we think crutch. No, repentance leads to actions and consistency in our lives. In fact, in Joel 2.13, it says, rend your heart, not just your garments, and make a change in your life. So uh, we see that here, that that's a characteristic of repentance. And then in verse 11 here, the Lord said to me, don't pray for this people for their good. This is the third time now. When they fast, I won't hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. The things that are coming for Judah is really sad. Verse 13, Jeremiah stands up and sort of protests here. He says something like this, is it really their fault, God? Think about that, and this is important for us to know. He goes, is it really their fault, God? Ah, Lord God, behold, verse 13, the prophets say to them, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. There's a whole group of prophets in Jeremiah's time, and Jeremiah apparently is the only one that has a different message that are saying, what, what's Jeremiah talking about? There's not going to be any sword or anything. You're good. You're the people of God. No problem. And Jeremiah says, well, God, is it really their fault, God? He's got, they've got all these prophets, false prophets telling them these things. And verse 14, the Lord said to me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. Their prophecy to you, a false vision, divination, a worthless thing in the deceit of their heart. Wow. They prophesy lies in my name. Well, we have it currently, folks. We have all kinds of groups of Christians in churches teaching you and teaching me and teaching us that there's no hell. It's right in mainstream denominations, uh, formerly great churches that are telling you things like there's no hell. (laughs) Are, Are you kidding me? God says, wow, they prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing. How do you know that false prophets or a prophet, a prophet is not a false prophet? Well, there's two tests, really. In the Old Testament, especially here, anything that they predict or say was going to happen had to be not 98%, not 99%, 100% accurate, according to Deuteronomy 18. And also, their message always, always had to agree with the law of God, Deuteronomy 13. Still the same today, folks. Therefore, verse 15, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send and who say sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. So you want to be a pastor, huh? See, 
that's the thing is this is a serious business in a way. And the Bible says, you know, you are in a category where you're being judged for the things you represent to the people. Here in verse 16, and the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. They will have no one to bury them, nor their wives, for I will pour their wickedness on them. Well, it seems to say, as you read through this, that not only were the leaders uh, uh, wrong uh, for teaching this sort of thing uh, that wasn't 100% accurate, but listen, there was a responsibility on the hearers to discern that it wasn't accurate. That gives me great pause or great motivation to study my Bible and to test the things that people are saying. Make sure they're from the Bible and from the Scriptures, you know? And, uh, of course, in... um, uh, in essentials, there must be complete unity, but in non-essential things, of course, there's charity. But, uh, and, and we must come to the place where we can sense and discern from the Word and by the Spirit when somebody's teaching false things. Well, here in 17, therefore, you shall say this word to them. Let my eyes flow with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke, with a very severe blow. If I go out to the field, then behold, those slain with the sword. And if I enter the city, then behold, those sick from famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go about in a land they don't know. Wow. They're the ones that have sort of taken the people down this road, and now they don't even know or (laughs) they're confused about where they are and who they are. Boy, isn't that what happens when the leaders of the church, uh, the church at large, start teaching things uh, that are unbiblical or that are wrong, such as whether or not there's a hell as as one example. And it makes people confused and uh, not unified, and uh, uh, it, it makes a place that you don't even know. Sometimes you uh, hear some of the things that are going out of a church, coming out of a church, and you go, Phew, is that even a church? I mean, right? You hear of, uh, you know, all people go to heaven, and you're like, well, man, I read the Bible, and uh, I'm not very smart, but it, it sure doesn't take me about five minutes to figure out that it's only God's way through Jesus Christ. So, going on, verse 19, have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed Zion? Uh, Why have you stricken us so that there is no healing for us? Some people believe the people are talking right here. Other believe uh, this is Judah, excuse me, Jeremiah talking. And if it's Jeremiah talking, he's praying to the Lord, even though the Lord asked him not to pray. Very interesting. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed Zion? Have you stricken us so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but there was no good. And for the time of healing, then there was trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nation that can cause rain or can heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord, our God? Uh, uh, therefore, we will wait for you since you have made all these. And it is just a beautiful prayer right there. It's a fantastic prayer. 
The problem is God's judgment has already been put into motion, or I don't know if it's a problem, but uh, God's judgment has already uh, been uh, put, put into motion. And so you can read this prayer, and it is a fantastic prayer. We wait for you. We are to wait upon the Lord. If you are uh, praying about something and you don't know which way to go, pray to the Lord and wait upon the Lord, and He uh, will be the one. He is the Lord our God. He is, uh, uh, you know, the, the great one of Israel, and uh, he will answer our prayers. But in this case, uh, judgment had to happen. And so, uh, uh, a beautiful prayer, and yet it had to be an unanswered prayer because his judgment was coming forth. Chapter 15, then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me. Isn't that fascinating? You could go over to Psalm 99. Those two are mentioned along with Aaron as great prayers. And they were great prayers. Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. And it shall be, if they say to you, where should we go? Then you shall tell them, thus says the Lord, such as are for death to death. Such are for the sword to the sword. He's telling them the ways in which they're going to die here in a couple years. And such as are for the famine to the famine, and such as for the captivity for the captivity. These are the ways you're going to die. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord. Within these ways, you're going to have dishonor because the sword's going to come to slay and the dogs will drag your corpses about, and the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. Can you imagine having to deliver this message? I will hand them over to trouble, to all kingdoms of the earth, because of, here it comes, this is why you're going to need my chicken scratch, I will hand them over to all the kingdoms of the earth, because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. Now, in my little chicken scratch here, he was two kings above Josiah. And Manasseh was generally uh, uh, considered the most evil king of Judah. And that's saying something, because there were lots of them were evil. And he did, uh, uh, you know, some dastardly things and brought in the temp or the idols and uh, uh, just really uh, made Judah unrecognizable or even worse than it was, I guess. What's interesting is there is some sense in which he may have repented at the end of his life, but whatever, he ushered in uh, an era of sheer evil, and you can read about that in 2 Kings 21 uh, uh, through there. So because of those things, now notice this. We're in the time of Josiah, folks. That happened in the time of Manasseh. God can't forget the sin. He can't just pat us on the head and say, ah, I know you stuck a knife in the guy's knee or leg, but ah, you were just joking around. I know you said, you know, you're sorry and or, or whatever. You took that, you know, from the store you stole or whatever. I don't know. Or you cuss that guy out in, in traffic. I got you all there. Uh, or whatever, right? I just can't do that. He can't do that. God remembers the sin until it's been paid for, right? 
And so this happened in the time of Manasseh. Uh, it's been two kings then. For who will have pity on you, Jerusalem? Who will have pity or who will bemoan you or who will turn aside to ask how you're doing? You have forsaken me, says the Lord. This is the Lord's response to Jeremiah's questions about all the things uh, about relenting and, and, and uh, you know, turning back and uh, giving them a break. And he says, who will bemoan you? Who will turn aside to ask how you're doing? You've forsaken me. You've gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand and destroy you. Look at this. This is amazing. The Lord says, I am weary of relenting, which means that he relented and 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 he relented. And at some point, the time was he wasn't going to relent anymore and judgment was going to come. And the wages of sin in our side or on this side of the cross is death. There comes a point in time. Well, there won't be any more chances, folks. And, and we'll die and meet our maker. And will we be found in Christ or will we not be found in Christ? And that's the message. He does relent, but there comes a point in time where he won't. And he'll winnow them with a winnowing fan, verse 7, in the gates of the land. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. That, that's what that means. I'll bereave them of children. I'll destroy my people since they don't return from their ways. Their widows will be increased to me more than the sands of the seas. I will bring against them, against the mother of the young men, a plunderer at noonday. I will cause anguish and terror to fall on them suddenly. Verse 9, she languishes who was has borne seven. She has breathed her last. Her son has gone down while it was yet day. She has been ashamed and confounded, and the remnant of them I will deliver to the sword before their enemies, says the Lord. Now remember, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 18, of course, or his own people. He doesn't take any pleasure in that, and yet he's a God of justice, and he can't Give up one for the other, you understand? God's all justice, all grace, all mercy, all love. That's why in Romans 3, it's so beautiful. It's one of the great passages of the Bible. It says that God is both the just and the justifier. He's the one that brought the sacrifice that paid for the sins, but he still meted out the justice. Isn't that beautiful? Well, keep going on here. Jeremiah now is dejected, woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me. Sort of like what Job said, it would have been better if I wasn't born. I'm a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent for interest nor have men lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. And sort of that's kind of the picture of the Christian folks. We want to run around in our, you know, Land Rovers and lattes and put it everything on Instagram and make everybody think we, you know, have these beautiful clothes and everything's going great in our Christian lives. And we have all the CDs and the Spotify accounts and, you know, we go to amazing concerts and everything we do is so beautiful and wonderful. And yet the Bible tells us that a man of God or a woman of God is sort of, in a sense, in some ways lonely because they take a path that the world says you shouldn't take. In fact, they make fun of and they ask that you don't do that. They want the, the world wants you to come with them. But here, you know, uh, Jeremiah had to be a man of strife. He had to stand up in the crowd. He had to stand up at the corporate party and say, that joke's rotten. I can't listen to it. 
And everybody talks about him and, you know, shuns him a little bit. Or we're going drinking and going to the gentleman's club afterwards. And you say, I can't go. I have a wife. I don't do that. I love the Lord. And then everybody makes fun of you for doing that a little bit. And you're, you know, nobody starts to ask you, and you, right? But what happens when somebody dies in the office or in your circle of friends or something bad happens? Oftentimes, those same people who are making fun run to you for answers. But see, it's a little lonely, and you have to stand up in some ways. You're a man or a woman of strife. You strive against the current of the world. And Jeremiah shows us that in a big way. I mean, his whole country hated him. His family hated him for what he was saying. And yet, it was totally from the Lord. And here in verse 11, the Lord said, Surely it will be well with your remnant. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you. Uh, uh, in the time of adversity and then in the time of affliction. Can anyone break iron, the northern iron and the bronze? Now he's talking about Babylon and how iron-fisted they're going to be. See, nobody can break iron, so it's not a popular message. The false prophets are saying, come on, nothing's going to happen. Jeremiah is saying, what are you talking about nothing's going to happen? Here in a couple years, this Babylonian force is going to come out of the north and break you to pieces like they're iron and you're nothing. Your wealth and your treasures I'm going to give as a plunder without price because of all your sins. You see how shocking this is throughout your territories. And I will make you cross over with your enemies into a land which you don't know. For a fire is kindled kindled in my anger which shall burn upon you. Now here comes another prayer. O Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your enduring patience, do not take me away. Know that for your sake I have suffered rebuke. Your words were found and I ate them. This is very familiar, especially also in Ezekiel, right? In chapter 3. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream? Hmm. As waters that fail. You see what he's saying here, right? It's that same old thing that Job ran into. Lord, you owe me. We say it all the time. Lord, I've been to 35 church services this year. I sat through that guy going over four chapters of Jeremiah week after week. I was at the prayer group. I have, I have devotionals with my buddies and or my girlfriends, and, and we give money, Lord. Lord, you owe me. That's kind of what he's saying here. It's what Job said. It's what Job said. Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream? Can you imagine saying that to God? As waters that fail. And we know, Jesus said, if you come to him, you'll have living waters from which you'll never be thirsty again. There'll be torrents of living water flowing from your life by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So is God enough or do you have to have the gifts? Well, God is enough. But here in 19, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me. If you take out the precious 
from the vial, you shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but you must, must not return to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall. <laughs> Can you imagine? Jeremiah is just basically saying, Lord, I've been doing this for some time now. It really doesn't seem that fruitful. And I feel kind of sorry for the people. they got all these false prophets, and here's little old me, just one out of many. And they're not discerning very well, but, I mean, they do have tons of false prophets. And, uh, Lord, I mean, you're going to find out here in one second, I can't even get married, Jeremiah says, and I have nobody to share these hurts and struggles with. I mean, come on, Lord, you, you sort of owe me this. And he says, Jeremiah, i got something greater and bigger for you. I got something, you're going to be like a fortified bronze wall. By the way, God told him he was going to be a fortified bronze wall in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. In other words, guess what God did? Here comes Jeremiah with all the questions, and I would probably be really smart-alecky back. I don't think the Lord's being smart-alecky. I think what the Lord's saying is, it's always the way of the Lord. Remember what I promised you. And what I promised you is I'm going to make you a fortified bronze wall. You were going to be big and strong and able to handle the beating. Get it? And these are the sorts of things that we're walking through together, Jeremiah. And if you don't walk through these things, you're going to be a paper mache wall. Or you're going to be a (laughs) styrofoam wall. But I want you to be a fortified bronze wall. And they're going to fight against you, but they won't prevail against you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I'll deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. Now, you've got to notice something here. Circumstantially, boy, this is it. This is about 70% of what I counsel about. Circumstantially, Jeremiah's circumstances are the worst. I mean, from a human perspective, you're going to see here in a minute, the Lord tells him, don't get married. (laughs) Don't go to any funerals. And don't go to any feasts. Don't have any fun. Don't go to any feasts. So he's lonely, right? I want you to be a bronze wall. And all your circumstances, your parents hate you, you know, your family hates you, your countrymen hate you, but look, I'm going to make you something. I'm going to make something big and beautiful and wonderful and strong, and people will fight against you, but they'll never win, for I am with you to save you. And if you're, look at this, look at this. If your circumstances never improve, it's never going to matter because I am going to be with you and deliver you. I'll deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. I've brought you back into my family. This stuff, although it hurts and it's not fun, no one's saying that, it's not what's really the important part. It's that you're bought back and you're with me, and that's enough, and it's more than enough, and I'll redeem you from the grip of the terrible. This is what discouraged Christian needs more than anything. They need to be reminded of the promises. You say, Lord, man, I need the... Gosh, that Land Rover is so beautiful. I deserve it, man. I'm the pastor here. I've been here all these months and weeks. Lord. The Lord says, 
Remember what I promised you? And here to Jeremiah, he promised him. He's acting upon God's promise, the promise that he made to him. I'm making you a bronze wall. We're making something big and strong out of you, Jeremiah. And for the people, we're not worried about the Lexus or what did I say? Land Rover? This is what discouraged Christians need. They need to be reminded of the promises of God. This is what I need when I'm discouraged. I need to stand on the promises of God. That's what God is teaching us right there. He may never bring you out of the circumstances, ever, until you go home to be with him. Well, look at this. Here's what God said to Jeremiah. Here's the word of the Lord, verse 1, chapter 16. You're not going to take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place, because the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who begot them in this land, they're going to die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried, but they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. They're going to be consumed by the sword, famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. Don't get married, Jeremiah. Verse 5, for thus says the Lord, don't enter the house of the morning, nor go to lament or bemoan them. I don't want you to send sympathy cards, Jeremiah. Interesting, for I've taken away, look at this, my peace, my shalom. From this people, says the Lord, loving kindness and mercies, both the great and the small are going to die in this land. They shall not be buried, neither men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. This is speaking of all the way in which they would mourn for the dying in, in their land there. Nor shall men break bread in the morning for them to comfort them for the dead, nor give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. Also shall not go into the house to feasting to sit with them to eat and drink, verse 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'll cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. And boy, we see no marriage, don't participate in the morning, in mourning and don't participate in feasts. There was no time for any of this matrimony or sympathy or revelry, you see. And these are all indications of the judgments to come. There's not going to be, there, you, you think you're ready to get married, that, well, that ain't happening. People are going to be dead and you're going to be back up into Babylon. And there are going to be so many people, you won't be able to bury them all and you're going to, festivals, you think you're going to have a festival in this current environment? No, you're not going to be have the festivals. That's one thing it says. It says that you're just not going to be able to do that. And Jeremiah's life was an indication of that. Isn't that wild? You ever said to yourself, God, why, why do you choose me to do this? <laughs> just be honest, you know. You're like, man, I know you're asking me to go talk to that person. I know you want to say something real difficult. I, I always say it. Lord, why, why do you choose me to do that? And yet that's what the Lord has for us in some ways. How about this? Here's another thing it says. For those not in Christ, doesn't it say this? Don't get married. Don't go to a funeral. Don't go to the feast of the festivals or to take part of any of those parties before surrendering your life to Jesus. In other words, do it now. Look at this in verse 10. And it shall be when you show this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what is your iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord, they've walked after other gods, served them, worshiped them, have forsaken me. 
and not kept my law. And you've done worse than your fathers before, before, before behold, sorry, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart. See, there's the own individual responsibility of every person for their sins, so that no one listens to me. Therefore, I'm going to cast you out into a land that you don't know. Neither you nor your fathers, and there shall serve other gods day and night where I will not show your favor. In other words, you see what God said there? If this is what you want, if you want to follow after gods, get out and you can go serve as many as you want. But he knows what's at the end of that. And what the end of that is, is death, dissatisfaction, just a dark, evil life. Well, verse 14, it comes like a lightning bolt out of the sky. Here it comes. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel. The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land which I gave to their fathers, and they were to have a seventy year time of exile. And they would come back. Behold, I'll send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterward, I'll send for many hunters, and they'll hunt them from every mountain, every hill, and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And first, I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they've defiled my land. They've filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. But, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of... Look at this. It's like, here comes the life back. The Gentiles shall also come to you or shall come to you. First of all, this would be shocking to those who he was prophesying about. We're the people of God. We're the Jews. And the Lord is saying, well, listen, when I bring you back out of exile, it's not just going to be you. It's going to be all people for all time. And, of course... In our day, we see that in incredible ways, right? And around the throne in heaven when we get there. All nations and all tongues will be singing to the Lord. Well, surely your fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness and unprofitable things. Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. You see... He sees the gathering of a Jewish remnant, but he also sees the Gentile nations coming to worship. Of course, we see it now in the church age, but we're going to see it for eternity around the throne. What a beautiful thing. And remember this before we leave this. He used marriage, funerals, and feasts as a picture of judgment. And just like the last time, what do we know from the second chapter of John? If you go there, what do we know from the second chapter of John? That Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding. And sort of he was ratifying and saying that this thing that's happening, I'm in favor of. It's a picture of what I am and the church is. I'm the bridegroom, and 
The church is the bride, and this is beautiful, and wine out of water where when you come to me, there's real life and intoxication in the right way with each other. Get it? That's that. What about this? What about funerals? How about 1 Thessalonians 4.13? Turn there. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, so we can see it with our own eyes. If I can get there. <laughs> but I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, the word for death, or the phrase for death, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have died or sleep in Jesus. He turned that around. Marriage. He told him no marriage. We get married to the Lord. It's a picture here of what's happening with the Lord. They uh, weren't, weren't to go to funerals, and they were going to be disgraced by not being buried. The Lord says when the Christian goes uh, in death, so to speak, it's the beginning of everything for the Christian. The worst thing that uh, man or uh, the enemy can dish out against man is the best thing for the Christian. It's the open door to him. Isn't that wonderful? Here's another thing. The feasts, we know, right, that we're going to be, uh, Revelation 19.9, involved in the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to be feasting in heaven with the Lord. Oh, shoot. God can turn it around. Well, look at this in 17. Real quick. In 17, 1 through 4, Judah, or God, or Jeremiah talks about Judah's idolatrous ways. They've, they've been written on the tablet of their hearts, their idolatrous ways, right? And uh, when you get up to chapter, or excuse me, verses 5 through 10, it talks about how the people in Judah have not believed, and specifically they show their unbelief by trusting in their own self. And that's chapter 5 through chapter 10. And what's fascinating to me in verse 7 is, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and his hope is the Lord, for he shall be... Ever, ever heard this before? So, let's write a song and sing it. He shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which speaks, or which spread out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat come, but its leaf will be green. How about this? Watch, watch. In this day and age, Ready? And will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Well, anyway, that's the companion to Psalm uh, 1. And it also speaks of, Jesus said that on our side of the cross here, by the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit we're going to be yielding fruit that gives glory to God. But the, the, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In other words, don't trust in the self-life. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. As a partridge that broods out does not hatch, so he gets riches, but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days. At, the end of, uh, at his end, he'll be a fool. And I've tried to get us all the way to verse 12 here. You say, what? Oh, boy. What a description of the Lord. A glorious high throne from the beginning 
is the place of our sanctuary. Now, let's talk about what sanctuary was. You know, even in extra-biblical writings, some of the pagan countries uh, had sanctuary places or even cities. And what would you do? If you did something bad, you would run to the city and you would claim what? Sanctuary. And there, the number one thing that you see through sanctuary is what? Protection. You're protected there. But this word here, uh, sanctuary, can mean holiness. It's where holiness is. That's interesting because the only one who's holy is the Lord. And it also uh, can mean things like, have you, have you ever... Uh, <laughs> You ever been like downtown or downtown Philly or downtown New York and you just see one of the big cathedrals and have you walked in and, you know, there might be some tour groups or something, but there's always in these big cities, especially in these massive churches, aren't there? There's a couple people who are up there by themselves. You know what I'm saying? Something's going on in their life. You know that something's going on. They're praying or they might be crying or something. What are they seeking? Solitude and aloneness with God, right? And that, that place where they can connect, it's not necessarily the building we know, but that's just what people do, right? And here, that, this means all of that. In other words, in all of these problems for judgment and idols and self-life and, and repentance and all this thing, the point that, or the place that we should be aiming for is the sanctuary. And you say, what do you mean? You mean in here? No, no, no. That's not what I mean. It's the place where God is. The safest and greatest place to be is where the Lord is. It's where solitude is. It's where health is. It's where repair and rejuvenation and healing and forgiveness and the, the self-life gets crucified. It's, it's that sanctuary. It's the place of protection and safety. You see it? Until a, look, look what G. Campbell Morgan says about sanctuary. Until a man, or, uh, until man finds God himself, he's never protected. Never protected until the uh, safety of man uh, is to be found. Or excuse me. The safety of man is to be found, listen to this, when he is governed by God because the throne speaks of authority. Everybody in the world is running from the rules and the regulations. I don't want to be a Christian. i got to do this. I can't do that. I can't do this. When in reality, the safest and most healing and most healthy place to be is to be actually running to the throne of God that's eternal. Watch this. It means to be governed by God. Everybody runs from it. But it's a glorious high throne from the beginning. It's eternal, that's what that means. It's the place of our protection and our healing and our forgiveness and our all in all. It's where we meet God and he does business with us and patches us up and speaks tenderness to us. He's the hope of Israel. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Here's what Jeremiah says, heal me, O Lord, and I'll be healed. Save me and I'll be saved for you're my praise. Indeed, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what day came out of, or what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Do not be a terror to me. You're my hope in the day of doom. 
Let them be ashamed who persecute me, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but don't let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. Now listen, verses 19 all the way to the end of the chapter is the Lord talking about going out and telling the children of of Judah, don't bear any burden on the Sabbath day, verse 21. Don't bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Don't do marketplace business. But look, in verse 23, but they didn't obey nor incline their ear, but made their necks stiff that they might not hear nor receive instructions. And then if you go down, it says, if you hallow the Sabbath day, verse 25, then shall enter the gates of the cities kings and princes, sitting on the thrones of David, riding in chariots, all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they'll come from cities, etc., bringing burnt offerings and all of that. But, verse 27, if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. And this was part of the Mosaic covenant, right? Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And they didn't do it. And they didn't do it. And notice that if they would have done it in the right way, Sabbath is a sort of worship. It's contagious worship is. Kings and priests would do it. All the men of Judah would do it. The inhabitants of Jerusalem did it. But they didn't. They didn't keep Sabbath. Now listen, to the Christian, we don't celebrate the Sabbath, folks. We celebrate the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. What happened on the Lord's Day? resurrection, first meeting with disciples. Uh, They gathered for fellowship in Acts 20. So we know that they gathered on the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. And to, to the Christian, listen to this. One writer says it this way, the Lord's day is not something you owe to God. To the Christian, the Lord's day is not something you owe to God. It's God's gift to you. Isn't that interesting? So we're not under an obligation to observe the Sabbath as they observed the Sabbath. You could go to Colossians 2, 16 and 17 and Galatians 4. But remember, it's still a great idea. (laughs) We're so busy. We never take a break. And the Lord says, no, in all of the Bible, all parts of the Bible. Leviticus is filled with this. God wants the Christian, watch this, folks, to always operate out of a position of rest. Always. What do you mean, Leviticus? Well, Exodus, I guess. You worked for six days. You rested on the seventh, yes. But what did you do with the land? What did you do with the land? You planted six Years, you let it rest on the seventh. By the way, there's no indication in the Bible that they ever actually followed that, and that's the reason they found themselves in exile. At the end of the 50 years, remember this, they were supposed to leave two years so they could trust the Lord even more and more. They never did that. And so, what does Jesus tell us? This is the beautiful part, and we'll end here. We're always to operate out of a position of rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. 
See, if you want to take the day of Sunday and make it your day that you worship and celebrate, then, well, that's fantastic. If you like Saturday, oh, do it on Saturday. That's wonderful. You like Tuesday? Hey, do it on Tuesday. It's a great principle to take that one day and just focus upon the Lord. The problem becomes when groups come around and they say, you don't worship on Saturday? You're going to hell. And that's what people say, by the way. (laughs) The other part uh, is this, is that we're always Sabbathing. Tomorrow when you get up, what's tomorrow, Thursday? You're going to get in the Word, you're going to pray, you're going to worship the Lord, and the Lord is going to give you that sort of peace and calm and strength and devotion and discipline to go meet the world. His life for your life, and that's the rest that you're going to take into the world. And then when it gets to Sunday because that's what it seems like most of you have chosen. You're going to take a day where you're just going to devote it as unto the Lord. What's a great thing to do on Sundays besides come to church and worship and fellowship and not as You know some other things? Remember what Jesus did on the Sabbath? He fed his disciples as they picked their heads off the grain as they were walking through places. But you know what else he did? He healed people on the Sabbath. And they got mad at him. Wouldn't it be great if after this, lots of us went out and we went to the nursing homes and to the shut-ins and to the sick and to the poor and visited the Sabbath? We always operate out of a position of rest. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much. Jeremiah, wow. All that written all those years ago and so relevant for today, Lord. Help us to be people who live out of a position of rest. Lord, we just move, 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 and go, go, go through life. We think everything's important that isn't important, and the things that are important we don't make important. And yet, Lord, um, Lord, we need to derive our source and resource and strength from you. Help us to do that tomorrow and the next day and going forward so that many this week, through our lives, Lord, as you use us, you would do it all, but uh, you would use us that many would come into the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.